0: Learn more at epiphany-stl.org. That's epiphany-stl.org. Our sermon text is from our gospel reading from Luke 7. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is our text. I suspect you've all had a similar experience. Walking along a street or a park, you are encountered by a dog, or more precisely, a large adolescent dog with the body of an adult, but the personality and manners of a puppy. And on the other end of the perpetually taut leash the owner strains to keep the unbounded strength and energy in check and it's not an easy job i appreciate those owners who work at teaching a degree of obedience to their pet but i do wonder at some of the methods they use now i'm not a particularly thin skinned person i'm not offended easily or often and that being said There was one dog encounter I had a while back that did take me back a little bit. Because as the youthful but impolite lab fought to greet me, its owner was fighting back so much harder with his complete attention focused on that young charge he had. And the owner then crisply snapped a single command, obviously gained through obedience training. With clipped authority, he said two words, leave it. And with that, and a heave of the leash, they went on their way. I suspect that it was a great success for dog and owner, but it struck me as a little bit odd because in the process, I had been reduced, presumably without malice, as an it to be ignored. I had been consigned to the status of a training exercise and categorized in the company of squirrels, fire hydrants, interesting French poodles, melting blobs of ice cream and rotting possum carcasses. Leave it. Indeed, I was an it to be snubbed by a dog. I had been put in my place. But being a theologian of the cross prepares one for such things. A theologian of the cross understands the hard truth about himself and is fully aware of exactly where he stands. He does not think too highly of himself and does not try to preserve his own dignity or worth. He knows that he is nothing more than a broken, fallible creature who is dependent on his Creator and Lord for absolutely everything. And a theologian of the cross is fine with that. Luther was a theologian of the cross. That's why he could refer to himself with rather strong language with things as like a maggot sack or a real hard-boiled sinner. He knew the score. And so to be considered and it to be ignored actually seems about right for a theologian of the cross. And I imagine you kind of know what I'm talking about because you also have been trained to be theologians of the cross. Being a a theologian of the cross has its benefits then because it helps you grow a rather thick skin. On the other hand though, it also makes this story we have this morning about this mysterious centurion who speaks but who never appears in the story, become a problem for us. It's a bit hard to take, isn't it? In fact, of the three challenging readings this morning, this one maybe has the biggest problem of all. Now, it's not the healing of the dying servant that is so difficult. That's no problem. It's exactly what we expect Jesus to do. Now, the hard part in this Gospel narrative is all of this talk about the worthiness of the centurion. This anonymous centurion must actually have been quite a guy. He builds a synagogue for the people he helps rule. He worries mightily about a slave that is treated more like a part of the family. And this Roman soldier even inspires a delegation of Jewish elders to lobby Jesus on behalf of the centurion. And yet, despite all of his credentials and his remarkable resume, there is still part of us that chafes at this notion that this man is actually worthy of a miracle. It's not an idea we like at all. Worthy, well, that's a category designation we tend to resist because we know better. We know that no one is worthy. No one deserves preferential treatment. No one earns Jesus' attention and favor. So it bothers us that such a fuss is made over a man who is, well, just a man. Someone, it seems to us, someone needs to put this guy in his place. And someone does. The centurion puts himself in his place it turns out that the centurion also knows what we are sure of he is not worthy and that's a relief it's good to know that at least someone in this story seems to know the score the centurion's own self-assessment that he is not worthy doesn't entirely solve our problem though because after all, while the centurion may have had a very humble attitude, this humility only serves to make everyone else in the story seem to consider him all the more deserving and worthy. Not even Jesus disputes the argument about the man's worthiness for healing intervention on behalf of his servants. And so the problem of worthiness is not so easily solved. Could it be Is it possible that our eagerness and even our need for the centurion to be put in his place is prompted less by our yearning for the vindication of good theology than it is for the vindication of our own sorry selves? You know it as well as I do. We are all inveterate defenders of self. It seems to be ingrained, or at least certainly taught as part of our fallen human nature. From our earliest years, we have learned that one of the most effective ways of comparing favorably to others is not to allow those others to rise too high above the common herd of ordinary sinners. Those who set the bar too high make life difficult for the rest of us. They skew the curve. No one likes the guy who gets 100%. So we need to bring them down a few pegs. And so we are very good and very proficient at the art of putting people in their place. That is, we are good at the art of knocking people down, correcting overestimates of self worth, and exposing those who look too good as just plain old sinners like the rest of us. And so we ridicule the pious man as a moralist and a killjoy. And we deride the one who seeks to do what is right as a self-righteous legalist. And driven by our own perverse need for self-promotion, the pride in our own hearts too cheerfully delights when the righteous man does crash. And we actually take pleasure when we learn that one who was once deemed worthy is actually worthless after all. Whether we are contesting the worth of another or simply secure and comfortable in our own presumed worth, pride always finds a way to assert itself. The theologian of the cross then is suppressed and banished from our hearts by our own pride. And we embrace instead the idol of self-importance and self-glorification. We want to count. Call it what you like self-esteem personal affirmation self-care however we name it it is in reality simply self-serving pride and pride not only leaves no room for the cross it is also the very antithesis of the one and only thing that does count so what is the one thing that counts how do we solve this worthiness problem that is troubling us well to get a hold of this we need to remember that worth never arises from within ourselves the one who is worthy luther says is the one who knows very well his own absolute failure his own desperate need and so he clings simply to the word of promise That's the one who is worthy. It's the one who knows and accepts his contingency and his dependence in the order of things and looks only to the one who is the only source of help. What this means is that the one who is worthy is the one who has faith in the Son of Man. That's what makes a person worthy. It is faith and only faith that counts not what you do, not what you think, not how hard you try. It is faith that makes a person worthy. And thus it is that even as the centurion rightly insists that he is not worthy and begs Jesus not to trouble himself by entering under his lowly roof, his own true worthiness is made clear because he has complete and abiding faith in Jesus. And that's the only thing that gives him worth the fact is the centurion is placing all of his hope for his dying servants only in Jesus and that is the essence of worthiness the centurion knows his place only God is God and the centurion well he's nothing but a broken and desperate creature who has no value or worth in himself He is helpless in the face of death. Jesus is the Lord of life. That this Roman officer, a Roman officer in the Roman legion, already sees Jesus in the authoritative place of God, who alone rules over life and death, is remarkable. And rightly then prompts the praise of Jesus. Even Jesus is impressed. And yet, even after this praise for the centurion, Jesus does not dispute the soldier's humble self-estimate. Jesus does not ever meet the centurion. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't go to the house. He honors the request. And he does not enter under the roof of the centurion. He stays outside. The delegation returns home without Jesus. And then they learn that the slave is already whole and healthy. The centurion knows his place. But much more importantly, Jesus knows his place. He answers the prayer of the centurion. He meets the need of the officer whose servant is dying. In his great mercy, Jesus honors the centurion who is in fact his own servant, and Jesus treats the centurion like his own child, part of the family. Jesus gives him grace. Jesus knows his place. It is with broken and desperate creatures, walking with them in their sorrow, suffering, and heartache. Jesus knows his place, fulfilling his Father's will, redeeming and restoring the groaning creation pushing back death, silencing sorrow, wiping out sin, crushing the head of the old snake and slaying the horrible dragon. Jesus knows his place. It is with his people in their broken world, suffering and enduring Satan's worst for them. Jesus knows his place, nailed to the cross, that his broken and sinful people, that we, broken and sinful people have made and raised by our own pride and our own willful rebellion against God Jesus place is on the cross because it is on the cross that he finally and fully destroyed death ended sorrow overcame sin and smashed Satan Jesus knew his place and the centurion knew his place and his words have become a prayer for those who also know the score I am NOT worthy that you should come under my roof you may not know this but the words have been pressed into a bit of remarkable liturgical and devotional usage in many Christian traditions just before the communicant receives the host at the Lord's Supper the believer is taught to breathe the prayer Lord I am NOT worthy that you should come under my roof Joining together the Christian who is about to receive Christ's greatest gifts, and the humble but confident centurion is quite right and very good. Both understand their great need, and both understand that they can make no claim on Christ based on their own performance or actions. The centurion, and you, the Christian today, you are alike in your need and your humility. And alike in your confident faith in God's mercy. But the outcome is completely different. Because remember, the centurion did not meet Jesus. You join the centurion and you pray the same prayer he prayed. Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But this time, this time Jesus will not heed it. He will not listen to the request that you He stay away and heal from a distance. No, in spite of your request and the very real sin and failure that infect your life, Jesus comes and He does His appointed work. He presses forward anyway. He comes right under your roof, right into your mouth, right into your guts, right into the very midst of your life. He comes into your being. He will not be deterred. No sin will get in the way of Jesus. No self deprecating humility will stop him. Though you do not deserve it, Jesus comes. Christian faith knows the score. Christian faith knows its place alongside the centurion pleading unworthiness. But then Christian faith must watch in amazement and joy and marvel with pure delight in the audacity. An appalling disordering. When Jesus inverts the right order of things, disregards what is deserved, ignores all questions of worth, and actually enters and then stays under your roof. That is exactly what Jesus does. He disregards the humble prayer for him to stay away. Instead, he comes under your roof. He comes and he puts you in your place, the place where he wants you to be. You are his, he dwells with you. That's your place with Jesus. Know your place and cherish it. You can because Jesus knows his place on the cross with his people, with you, his own child, amen.